Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking to one of the University of Exeter's doctoral graduates, Dr. Simon Clark, about his experience setting up a wildly successful YouTube channel during his PhD, and all of the science communication work he's gone on to do afterwards, and in particular, the publication of his first book, Firmament. So uh, my name is Simon Clark. I am a full-time professional nerd and I uh, mostly express that through making YouTube videos. So I have been running a YouTube channel about various topics in science, mostly earth science, particular focus on climate change uh, since I graduated with my PhD in 2018. I had to think then because it's been actually quite a few years. Um, and I uh, also do a variety of other things. So I do a bit of live streaming on Twitch. I have a podcast. And uh, recently I wrote a book called Firmament, which is an introduction to and history of atmospheric science. I guess the starting point for me is about how you became interested or what led you to become a professional nerd, um, in <laughs> particularly in terms of kind of science communication. What was the route that took you from kind of being a researcher and doing a PhD to what you're doing now? Like, how did that, how did that evolve? It's something that sort of spon- kind of spontaneously happened over a long period of time um, in that I so when I was a kid, I used to want to be a film director. Like I was obsessed with cinema and the moving image and stuff like that. And so I, I ended up doing science because that was sort of what I felt like was a responsible thing to do societally and financially. Uh, and um, ended up, you know, doing my undergrad and did my PhD. But when I was in my undergrad, I, ha- I had this opportunity. I, I-, I thought to make video content that would be worthwhile because I. Was a state school kid. I went to a comp- comprehensive state school just outside Bristol. And um, when I applied to study physics at Oxford, I was the only, no one from my school had ever done that before. No one had ever gone to Oxford to study physics. And so I had loads of questions about how the process worked. You know, what were the interviews like? Did you have to speak Latin to get in? Did you have to have a parent who'd uh, been to Oxford to go there? And I just didn't know. You know, these are for someone who's been there, these are silly questions, but I, didn't know any better so um when i when i got in i realized that i had something of a a valuable perspective uh as somebody who could help the student that i was a year ago so when i spent a term at oxford and i'd seen what life was like and i'd also seen the admissions process from the other side of the coin i just made one video uh about what that was like you know what what life is like at oxford some advice to people who are applying and that was it i thought i'd be done um and then it hit the big time and it got like 100 views and i thought that maybe i could do another one because there were lots of people in the comments who could you know who who had other questions so i I did another video a couple of months later and then another one and another one and i gradually fell into this thing of actually sort of becoming the a a internet version of a of a movie director uh in in that i was you know making my own short films and um it was something that i carried on in the phd and i eventually ended up doing a a series where I was vlogging my life as a PhD student and that was something that 
was very deliberately as a an exercise in science communication and in outreach. It was trying to show what the process of doing a PhD was like, but also what I was doing in my research and sort of telling people about the field that I was really interested in. And um, that got to the point where towards the basically in the final year of the PhD, I sort of weighed up my options and thought to myself, you know, I think I could do this as a full-time thing. Um, it wasn't at the point where financially that was anywhere near possible. Like I was not earning very much at all then. But I, I thought that with a, with a sort of a year of concerted effort and a little bit of luck, I could maybe do this as a job. And it wasn't so much a deliberate choice that I made thinking it would be successful as an opportunity that I thought I would regret not taking. So I, I ended up doing it you know, giving it a go post PhD um, and ended up, you know, where I am now. But in terms of why I didn't want to stay in academia and I wanted to do that psychom and media production, uh, but basically I, I didn't have necessarily the best time in my PhD. I, I didn't have the best working relationship with my supervisor. And because it's the, the first time I did my PhD, I didn't really know what that relationship was supposed to look like. And so we didn't, you know, get publications out. We basically had to scrape together a thesis at the end of the process. There was enough science that had been done, but it was just so disjointed and all over the place and stop-starty that we sort of had to compile it all together into a thesis at the end. But that meant that I felt, whether this was accurate or not, but I felt at the time that I didn't have the option to go into academia because I didn't have those publications. But more than that, I just wasn't really having a good time and it wasn't wasn't something that I was passionate about doing anymore. Whereas the, the video stuff, I was, I was very happily staying up until one or two in the morning editing videos. And it was something that I could really see myself doing. And I loved that process of coming up with an idea and, and crafting it and making it your own video. And in that video, doing some teaching, because that's that's fundamentally sort of how I think about my content. You've got a, a learning objective, you have some educational objective that you want to try and achieve, and you craft a video to try and maximize the probability of your audience reaching that objective. And that's a process that I, I really enjoyed then and I still enjoy doing now. So, you know, <laughs> have no plans to stop doing this. Amazing. And I think it's... it's um... I find this with a lot of people I talk to about what they've gone on to do after um, after PhDs or research degrees is there's this kind of um, accidental or this kind of serendipity, I guess, of mm. following various interests from various parts of their lives and then that kind of coalescing into a career, which it's done really beautifully for you. Um, it, it's something that my dad calls proactive serendipity. Oh, I like that where you're, you, you know, the, it's very lucky that I've been in this position, but I was only able to be lucky because I put all the sort of the work in before and I'd made hundreds and hundreds of videos before I turned full time. So I had the skills built up, but you know, at the end of the day, it still takes, it's the whole 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration thing. Like it's, it's lots and lots of work, but you do need that break that you do that, that bit of luck in order to be successful. And that's the bit that you just have to try and maximize the probability of, but is out of your control. So thinking about kind of, you know, you, you said you said when you were kind of in the final year of the PhD, you were making a little uh, kind of a little bit of money from it, but not anything kind of, you know, to live on or anything. But how how did you go about thinking and turning that into effectively a business and a, and a job for yourself? I mean, I, I'm not the kind of kid who who grew up wanting to be a CEO. Um, I, I was very much I was and I very much 
and not still uh, business oriented. So, I mean, I, I personally, my personal opinion is there are two kinds of YouTubers. There are those who run a business and it happens to be making videos. And there are those who make videos and they happen to run it as a business. And I'm definitely the latter. I am somebody who just made the content that I thought was interesting and trusted that if I thought it was good enough, other people would think it was good. And that was something that, you know, I just sort of put all my eggs in that basket, so to speak. And after I finished the PhD, I was like, right, what are the topics that I find cool? What are these, what, what are stories that I can tell? And I suppose just blindly trusted that that would eventually turn itself into a job. And, you know, that, that I, th I think I have been very lucky, but I think also that that is a general, something that is true in life, that if you make stuff that's good, people will, come to you you don't necessarily have to do all all of the but the legwork yourself you just have to make something that's good and get it out there and eventually think you know it may take a while but eventually it does get to that audience and that audience then becomes something that you can turn into a business but the process that last step is something that has happened almost entirely bungled through i'm like the mr bean of of the business world it's the things have sort of happened to me and i've been very lucky but i have very little uh kind of willful kind of agency over it yeah mr bean of the business world is quite a quite an image um so one one of the reasons why i wanted to have a chat with you is about the book that you've written um firmament can you tell me a little bit about how what, what, I mean, what the book is about, but also how it came about the, for you to write the book, how that opportunity kind of presented itself. So I, in, in terms of what the book's about first, so the, so the book is, uh, it's, as I said earlier, it's an introduction to, and it's a history of atmospheric science. And those two are sort of key components of it, 50-50, because when you're learning about atmospheric science in an undergrad or in a PhD, the, the emphasis is very much on here are the equations, here's how you apply them, go like there's 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 very little historical context and often actually very little scientific context to you know where these things come from where do these expressions come from and when I was an undergrad my favorite lecture series was thermal physics uh, taught by Stephen Blundell and the reason one of the reasons it was my favorite apart from the fact that he was an amazing lecturer was that he went on these little historical asides and he filled in that that context and I don't know if it was just me hopefully not uh, but I found that knowing that historical and scientific context to why an expression is the way it is and how we came to know this stuff how we know what we know was really useful and really interesting so when I was when I one sort of sat down to work out you know if, if I were to write a book what would I want it to be about that was very much at the forefront of my mind and I designed it to be similar to books that I read when I was in sort of sixth form and undergraduate so books like In Search of Schrodinger's Cat or The Elegant Universe or you know, if you really want to get grandiose like A Brief History of Time um, so something that gets you interested in the subjects not necessarily very detailed in terms of the uh, the academic detail there's not very many equations for example in it um, but it's something that sparks your interest sparks your passion and provides that historical context because those books exist for, for physics and for chemistry and for biology, but as far as I could tell, nothing existed for the atmosphere. 
meaning specifically the atmosphere, not just weather and not just climate, because there are a couple of books that have been written as sort of a historical introduction to climate change, like you know, the, the discovery of global warming by Spencer Wheat was quite a big sort of influence on me. Um, but it, the atmosphere specifically, the physical system, how we, uh, how we discovered it, how we understand it, and sort of how that understanding has evolved over time, just nobody seemed to have written about for that audience before. So that was my, my goal. It was to write a personal statement book that kids will say they've read on their personal statement. Hopefully they have actually read it. Um, and then in terms of how it came to be, I, like I said, I, I, I sat down and sort of worked out if I were to write a book, what would it be about? And I, I sort of kind of wrote, I suppose, a rough book proposal in, in mentally. And I think I must have written it down somewhere that I haven't. I, have, I wish I could find that original note. Um, and I, I set it as a goal of mine. I, I wanted to, to write this book. And I, again, the whole proactive serendipity thing, I started a book series on my YouTube. I started a series of videos where I talked about books and reviewed what I was reading and suggested books for people with the explicit intent, intention of uh, that being something that a publisher would find see me see my social media profile and think oh this guy's a science person who knows about books and seems to know what they're talking about maybe they should write a book um and that that was a very explicit goal in my head of having a, a book playlist uh, on my channel and um eventually that worked it's somewhat unbelievably one of my plans actually worked and um i had an email from a publisher hodder and stoughton and they asked me to come in basically you know if i had any ideas for a book and i had that proposal basically ready and uh, almost completely unchanged is is what we ended up um publishing that's phenomenal and i think you know that <laughs> yeah that proactive serendipity um of going this is this is something that i would like to do this this is how i can use the work that i'm doing and the platform that i have to perhaps work towards that yeah maximize the chance of, of having luck happen to you in a very wishy-washy yeah. way <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's it's absolutely true i was quite interested in what you were saying about um the history and the science but also kind of thinking about some of the the public speaking training and work that I've done, particularly with scientists, where we talk about kind of public engagement or science communication. And there's this always this real kind of like really intense fear of dumbing the science down mm. for a lay audience. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about kind of what it was like writing or, you know, just generally the obviously the com science communication work you've done about your experience as a as a researcher who's someone who's got that kind of scientific background doing the more quote-unquote popular science or popular communication? It, it's tough. I mean, the fundamental problem of science communication is that balance between content, meaning having something that is scientifically accurate to the best of our knowledge and is, is truthful, and weaving a story that people actually want to listen to or read about or little watch. Um, because, you know, a perfectly just just reading the IPCC report for the, the context of climate change, for example, would probably be a video that I could make that would be the most accurate thing I could possibly produce. But the problem with that would be nobody would watch it. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe some people would. I don't know. Maybe I could do an ASMR reading of the IPCC report just to have a maximum number of acronyms in the title. <laughs> um, but it's it's that's the fundamental challenge really and it's something that i've oscillated on over the years i think and and what i've what i've eventually hit on is you have to pick your battles and and by that i mean you have to pick a level of science capital so you know this concept of how into science a person is whether that's through 
their, their interests at, at you know in terms of podcasts or videos or whatever it is but also you know degrees that they have and, and things like that and I delight in making stuff for a high science capital audience. So when I give talks at universities, I can go into, here's this equation I derived. Let's talk about all the different components and what they mean. And this is applying it to this data. And this is where this data comes from. And these are the problems with it and the assumptions we make and all this kind of stuff. That's great. I love doing that. Um, but at the same time, I recognize that aiming for that high science capital audience is aiming for a minuscule component of the people that you could be reaching with SciComm. And furthermore, the, the goal of, of talking to them is to raise their science capital, but you're only gonna raise it by a tiny proportion. It's gonna be the, the thinnest slither on the top of their, their science capital on the bar graph. Whereas if you aim for a lower science capital audience, you can do more societal good and raise their science capital by a far larger proportional and honestly, I think absolute value. Um, and so, when I am writing stuff, whether that's the book or whether it's videos, I have this audience in mind to sort of have this, this learning objective in mind of who needs to know this and you know, what do they need to learn? And therefore, what level do I need to pitch this at? And once I've done that, in a way, the script kind of writes itself. I don't know if this is because of my, my training as a physicist, but the, the whole fundamental thing with physics is you neglect information in order to make a system solvable. Like you make assumptions about there being no air resistance or no friction or whatever it is, or, or radial symmetry in order to be able to write an equation that describes what's going on. And I feel like that happens with me when I'm writing scripts for, for, for a relatively low science capital audience in that it forces you to strip down to what is the core essential of this topic. And once you've got that, making sure that you're not saying anything that actually contradicts the broader picture. Are you saying anything that if you fill in all those other extraneous details and you put air friction, air resistance and friction back in, are you still correct? Um, and, and that is, is really the fundamental problem. It's trying to render something down as simply as possible without ma making sure that you're not contradicting anything in the broader picture. And for videos, I feel like I've got that down to a reasonable extent now. I think I'm okay at that. With with the book, the benefit was that I had much, much more time to work on it. Like in, it, the writing process for a YouTube video is typically a, about a week, whereas you know the book was about eighteen months to two years. And so it really allowed you to to write something and stew and look at it. I was like, right, okay, now how would a, a hydrological researcher look at this paragraph? What would they say? And they're going, oh, actually, yeah, when you look at it from that angle, that that particular adjective is probably not quite right. Let's change that to be, you know, rather than significant, use substantial or, or something like that. So it's 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 something that definitely um, it gets easier the, the longer you do it, but also gets easier the more time you have to do it for, for a given thing. Yeah, so um, on that on that note about the kind of the time and the process of writing the book, you you said that Hodder and Stoughton got in touch with you through the YouTube series and brought you in for a meeting, and you had you had kind of a proposal already. Can you can you talk a little bit about kind of the process of I guess agreeing and doing a formal proposal to write the book, and then also like <laughs> the big question of what is it like to write a book. Wow, big question. Well, I mean, in my okay, right. Let's. I'll go through those in order. So, in terms of, I went into their offices in London and I met up with my editor Ian Wong, who was who was very enthusiastic and he knew me from my videos and was obviously very keen to work together. And he basically said, "Have you got any ideas?" And I, I, I tried to low roll this 
the, this idea that I've been sort of stewing for years and years um, and sort of pitched that. And basically we agreed on the day of that this is something that's interesting and I'm pretty sure the publisher would like to go for this. What? So I'll send you an email with all the details. And then I got back home and then got an email from Ian saying, right, I want you to fill out a Brook proposal. And what that is, and he sort of walked me through it. And it was basically saying to the publisher who I am, why I should be trusted to write a book, what are my credentials, um, why I think people would be interested in this topic, you know, what's the selling point of the book, and then a writing sample. So basically what ended up actually being, I think almost entirely the introduction chapter of the book. So it was a couple of thousand words, like not very many, um, that allowed them to see what my authorial voice was like. And I, I remember, I so clearly remember writing that in a Weatherspoons in uh, Bishop Stortford in Hertfordshire, um, which is where I lived at the time. I used to go into town to like do a bit of work and there's an image of me with a diet, pint of Diet Coke uh, in the middle of the day in this almost empty Weatherspoons writing this book proposal, um, which I eventually finished and sent over and there was a br brief period of deliberation, like a couple of days and they got back to me and were like, great, we want to green light you. We're now going to talk about contracts. Um, and at that point, I realized I probably should have should get myself a literary agent. And I just so happened to have a, a, a friend of mine um, who had just written a book um, and um, you know it was Andrew Steele I should probably give him a shout out actually Andrew Steele who wrote a book called uh, Ageless about the science of aging and um, he he had a literary agent that he introduced me to and basically he liked the sound of the project as well so he agreed to represent me and then he spoke to the publishers and we, we got um, a contract hashed out which we then signed and it was basically then right You've got um, a year, I think was, was if there wasn't exactly, but it was about a year to write this project. Um, and that was the start of 2020. And then everything went tits up and uh, the whole oh, plan. Wow. What a time to start. Yeah, it, it really was. And especially because I got COVID quite early on in the pandemic I, in the first couple of months. So I um, immediately I was like, right, I, I'm like a month behind already. I think we're going to need to realistically changed this delivery date um and and also it, it it changed how i wanted to write the book because originally my plan was to go to the met office and talk to people in the archives and feature interviews with people and actually put myself into the book a little bit more a bit like how naomi klein does this in some of her her works um and sort of be a character as it were and that just was not going to happen because travel was just going to be totally impossible um so we ended up pushing the delivery day back a bit and um i i just sort of got my head down and started working on it i mean originally the plan that i had was to much like you'd write a paper i suppose was to write out all of your research do you know find all these these books on for every chapter that you're going to write buy a bunch of books take notes from each of them find articles online find papers take notes and then coalesce those all together into a chapter and i did that for one chapter and it took me about two or three months. <laughs> so it was totally unfeasible for the rest of the book. And so what I have ended up doing was more of a kind of rolling road approach of, I had a structure, I knew what was going to go into each chapter and I knew what the big points were going to be in each chapter. Because at the end of the day, when you're writing an introductory text, you know the science that you're talking about. But what you don't know is all the detail that goes in between. It's all the, the historical detail and the fleshing out of characters and little bits of information that you can drop in here and there that really make the book what it is that's the that's what hangs on the skeleton of of the science so i i ended up um just sort of yeah re researching and writing 
not immediately writing something as soon as you've researched it, but sort of pulling together a document, pulling together notes, and then doing a bit at a time. And originally, my, my strategy was I would write for an hour a day. That was my, my goal in my Notion database for every day, write for one hour. And I found that what happened was I would just sort of open my Word document and you'd piddle around for a bit and then go, oh, would you look at that? An hour's up. I've done my objective and then carry on with the rest of my day. And it meant that I just wasn't writing enough. So I switched to uh, writing a certain number of words a day. And originally, I think it was 100 words in a day, which is a pitiful writing target, but it's very achievable. So what you, what I inevitably did was I would write 100 words and go, well, yeah, but I've, I've got the laptop open now. And I felt like I'm kind of in the flow. So I'll just keep going. And you'd end up writing a couple of hundred words. And then gradually just upping the word count that I wanted to write per day. So eventually writing 500 words a day and then 1,000. I think towards the end of the, the process, right at the end, when I had the book in my head and I just needed to, to flesh out the last few bits and you know basically do the set dressing, I think I was writing two or 3,000 words a day. Um, but that was because I, I, the words were already written in my head. I just had to put them down on, on keyboard. Um, and yeah, there was sort of this little bit of a little bit of a mad rush, as I suppose anybody who's done a thesis or written a dissertation will have experienced as well, towards the end where you have that that concept and you just want to get it down. And um, then delivered that first draft of the manuscript. And foolishly, I thought that that was where I was mostly finished. But then obviously you have to do a bunch of edits. And originally there's there's the round of edits where you speak to your editor and you effectively ask, right, are the chapters in the right order? And are the points in each chapter in the right chapter? And once you've done that, then doing a second round of edits where you're saying, right, are the paragraphs in each chapter in the right order? Are they, um, do they is there a logical flow? Is there a story that's being told here? And then going through um, with a, a copy editor goes through and kind of goes word by word. Is everything spelled correctly? Is the grammar correct? All this kind of stuff. And then you get a, um, a copy editor who will go in and I'm sorry, no, that's the copy editor. Then you get a proofreader who comes in and does the same thing. And you'll get notes from each stage of this where the, the amount of work you do generally decreases with each step. But every time you'll get a big document that will say, right, these are the suggested changes, review them. You don't have to do them, but we think you should do these things. Um, and so there's that big block of work and then a, a kind of spaced repetition almost of going through with a fair bit of work and then a little bit of work and then a tiny bit of work. And then eventually you get what you think is a finished book and you record the audio book for it, whereas in my case, I did. And um, you go into the, the booth and then you find a whole bunch of other stuff that you want to change. Um, and things that are very minor typos that have just been missed up until now. And sometimes there'll be version problems where there'll be two versions of a, of a paragraph that one's slightly different, but for some reason the old one's still there. Um, and that's the, like, the final time you have you know, it's, it's like gradually taking your hands off the wheel of a car. And originally you're gripping on really tight. And then eventually you, it's sort of like letting Jesus take the wheel. Eventually you, you've just got like a finger on it. And then it, as you record the audiobook and you send off the last sort of few bullet points to change, the last few atoms of your skin leave, leave the wheel and suddenly it's completely out of your hands and it's getting printed 10,000 times and it's being sent all over the world. So that, that's kind of what it's like to write a book. <laughs> um. I was interested about what you said about the audiobook actually and about reading um <laughs> and about <laughs> reading it um because I mean partly personally I can't imagine anything I would hate more than recording something that I had written um but what what was that like what was that uh, like because that's a whole other machine 
Yeah, I mean, so I uh, the the only analysis the analogy that I can make is that. So I, the other thing that I do in my, in my spare time, I paint models. So I, I paint Warhammer, and um, it's like spending what you think is a really long period of time on a model and getting it perfect. You're looking at it from every angle and you think that's absolutely where I want it to be. And then you put it under, somebody basically pulls you aside and says, for the next two days, you're going to be looking at that thing through a microscope and you're going to write down every little thing that you find wrong with it. And as a process, I'm sure that it has made me better as an author and it's made me better as a narrator, but it it was a massive hit to self-confidence. <laughs> it was definitely a massive hit to thinking that I knew what I was doing in the first place. Um, but because, yeah, it, it, it just exposes every little thing that you've done wrong because there is no room for interpretation. There is no, um, at no point are you allowed to change what is actually written on the page unless there is an actual mistake. You have to read out every syllable as you wrote it. You can't con do, use contractions. You can't switch the order of words around. If you do, there'll be a little voice in your ear that will say, nope, sorry, you've got to do that again. Um, and so it locks you into to what you have done. And it was two days that were about eight hours each in a booth of just reading stuff that I'd written and going over a real journey with that because I realized that as I assume most authors do. I started writing the book at the start and then worked my way through. And that means that you find your, your voice as, as you go, sure. And you will then loop back to the start after you found your voice and you know what you're doing and you'll edit what you wrote. But even then, I found the first couple of chapters, I was like, oh, this isn't, this isn't quite what I wanted it to be. It's fine. And, and everybody has been very lovely about it. And we've not had any negative feedback at all about the first few chapters. But to me, I don't think they matched up to the image that I had in my head of the, of the book. By the end of it, by the second day, I was really in the flow of it. And I, I was better at narrating it in, the, in that I was tripping up less and I wasn't mangling my words quite so frequently. So you'd actually go for a couple of pages at a time without fouling up and having to, to start again um but also i felt like the book really got into its own and so that was a that was a real kind of journey of going in very naive being really smacked down in terms of self-confidence and then by the end of it finding actually you know what this is okay you've you've done pretty well with this book i think <laughs> yeah I, that and that must be really um really challenging as well for someone who's used to YouTube as a medium and speaking much more fluidly and freely, I guess, or imp improvising. Yeah, and, a word. And, and having total control over um, and and soul control over what I make. I, I don't have to put pe things through. 20 people in order for a final product to come out the other end. If I wanted to, I could turn on my camera right now, film a a, a, a video not even edit it at all if I didn't want to and just put it on YouTube and it goes out to my audience. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that's not something I'd ever do, but it's not, but I like having that control and having, having that sort of final say over, over the stuff that I make. So definitely adapting to being limited in that sense. And it was limiting in terms of the audio book, but also, but, you know, when you're writing the book, you're obviously having to, to work through other people and having people caution you and say, actually, I don't think this works. And, all that kind of stuff. It, it was it was a definite shift, and I think I think it has made me better. Uh, and the book is undeniably better for that process. And I think it's also made me better as as an author because at the end of the day, I'm borrowing other people's expertise, um, and hopefully using that to improve my content going forwards. Uh, but yeah, de a definite change to what I was used to.
And so moving kind of forward to the kind of the publication of it. So, I mean, I'm interested to know what that was like to have to finally have the book in front of you. Yeah, I mean, that was um, so I. There have been several moments where I've been kind of like, oh, my gosh, I'm writing a book like I or I have written a book um, and, you know, submitting the uh, the manuscript, the final version of the manuscript was one of them. Seeing the proofs of what the outside was going to look like was another one. Um, seeing what the, you know, the, the typeset version of the book, a PDF of what it was actually going to look like on the page was another. But the, the ultimate one was a couple of weeks before it was released, holding it in my hands. They sent me a, a box of about 12 of them to distribute to people. And I was just sort of struck dumb. That was, it was a really emotional moment to hold this thing that I've I'd spent so long on, but also it was this ambition that I'd had for years and years and years um, to to write. It was a it was a really really big moment for me, and in a way, I, I told myself that because of all of that, because I'd had that big resonant emotional connection holding the book, I thought that the actual release date itself wouldn't be that significant because we'd actually had some press before then and um, I'd had sort of reviews from people who I'd sent early copies to which were very nice and you know I just didn't think there was very much to do itself on the day but it still was a whirlwind it was still absolutely overwhelming because you you put the posts out on social media and everybody's over you know sort of overwhelming with congratulations and everything like that on on Twitter and on Instagram and I did a live stream on Twitch where I was answering people's questions and I did a bit of a reading and the day just flew by. Like I, I'm glad I, I had very few things to do that day, and I'm glad of that because I just I, I was there was no way I was going to be able to do anything else. I was just so emotionally spent trying to keep up. It was almost like hold the day was going away from me, and I was just trying to keep a handle on it and keep a handle on what was going on. So um, yeah, it, it was totally overwhelming, um, and and something that I think I'm just about okay with the idea now that I have published a book and it's in shops all over the all over the world now and people have been very nice about it and people have written nice reviews and I, I previously I understood that in abstract I think now I actually I believe it and I actually understand that it's a thing that's happened. And so what what's happened since you know after that kind of really intense day of publication day what what's happened since in terms of you know publicity for the book or you know what opportunities have you got as a result of of doing the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I've done quite a few literary festivals. I was in Warwick, uh, the University of Warwick last week. And previously I had talks in, in Bath and Bristol and London. I'm off to Hexham later this year. I actually just got invited to the, I, hopefully I'm allowed to say this, um, to the Jersey Literary Festival, um, which is amazing because I, I love Jersey as an island. Um, uh, so yeah, you know, there have been great opportunities to travel as a result. Um, it, it, I think it gives you a certain level of, of, of psychom gravitas <laughs> if you if you have a book. Um, and, you know, that that is, I think, probably going to be around for a little while. The other thing which has happened is that I am now constantly thinking of, and my publishers asked me about, you know, doing another one. And it's a process that I, I would like to repeat. And so, you know, every pretty much every day now, I'm just mulling over ideas in my head about like, what do I think is important? How would I change what I did before? Um, yeah, like there's, 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 there's stuff now that is sort of, in, it, I think I have it in my head that I like writing books and I would like to write more of them. And that's something that I imagine is going to only 
intensify and grow over the years. And eventually, I, I don't want to stop making YouTube videos, but maybe eventually I'll be author and part-time YouTuber rather than the other way around. Because that was going to be my next question is the kind of the what next um, in terms of, you know, continuing with the YouTube channel, but obviously, you know, what if the kind of the goal that you were trying to manifest was the writing the book, what what's what's next? What's the next thing that you're kind of thinking I mean, about or that you'd like to do? I mean, I would love to the, the project that I think is most would be the most valuable to do is a book about geoengineering and that's something that I didn't quite deliberately didn't cover in firmament but I think is worth its own book and introduce people to what I, I, I unfortunately think is going to be a big political issue this century is this idea of should we deliberately change the climate to undo some of the damage that we've previously done um, and there are a couple of other things that are mulling around my head but that's the one I keep coming back to so in the short to medium term, I imagine that it would look like my future is going to involve making that. And if that one does well as well, because, you know, Furman has certainly done, it's, it's far outperformed my expectations in terms of sales and, and Hodder and Stoughton have been very, very happy with it. Um, so if another one goes well, then who knows, maybe this is something, maybe this is sort of the way that things are for me for the, the foreseeable future is doing a book every couple of years. And if that involves me, getting to meet interesting people and visit interesting places and just have to write about it um then that's that's fantastic i'm very happy with that it's incredibly incredibly exciting um i usually kind of try and finish things up by saying you know if if there's one of our kind of researchers out there who's listening to this who's thinking you know science communication sounds like a really exciting um career path and something that I might want to investigate what kind of advice would you give them particularly whilst they're still doing their research degree about what they might explore or what opportunities to make the most of to kind of put them in a really good place when they're coming out of it to yeah perhaps think about going into so the the toughest piece of advice I was ever given and this was fortunately very early on uh, when I was making videos was also the, the the piece of advice that I give everyone because I think it's very true which is you have to accept the fact that the first hundred videos you make will suck and it's just unavoidable because you're not very good at it but every time you make a video that sucks you get a little bit better and you'll get to the point where you've learned enough from enough mistakes and you've learned enough lessons that actually you can probably make something that's half decent on your 101st attempt and it's the same in any other field it's the same in drawing you know i think it's is it chuck larry who was the the artist for bugs bunny said that every artist has a million bad drawings in their pencil and it's your job as an artist to push them out and eventually you get to the good ones or if you're you're writing the first piece of of, of, of writing you ever do is going to be bad but the next piece will be better because you learn from it and if you are interested in making stuff if you're interested in communicating science in a particular format then don't worry about doing it well and don't worry about doing it when you're doing it full time just start doing it just make stuff because the first step to being good at something is being bad at something and that is the hardest step i think actually is to, is to take that initial step of i just i want to do something this is this is i i, I like the idea of making a podcast i'm just going to make it and 
it will probably be bad. But the next time around, you'll probably learn from it quite quickly. And the second thing you make will be a lot better. And sure, maybe the first, you know, it might not be 100. It might be 10 or 20 things that you try are going to not be popular. They're not going to be very good. But you're not going to get to the point to make something that will be good and will be popular without making those other projects. So, so if you are interested in doing this down the line, don't think in terms like down the line start doing it now and start learning those lessons whilst you're still in a structure like doing a phd or like doing a postdoc that gives you that flexibility and it means that you're not dependent on doing this um it's it's almost like a bird growing feathers before it tries to flee the nest like you don't hop out of the nest and then hope that you grow feathers on the way down you you get to the point where you're able to take off and whilst you're still in a safe environment so definitely just start making stuff. And in terms of getting the message out there, I'd also recommend people to develop social media platforms. So it depends. It's entirely down to, to personal taste and sort of the audience you're trying to reach. I developed my uh, Twitter and my YouTube, obviously, as I was uh, going through the PhD. Um, but it allows you to signal boost something. It means that you make something and you boost it to an initial audience of people who, if it's good, will then boost it to other people and they'll boost it to other people and so on and so on. But you have that little Kickstarter, that starter engine for, for uh, attention and publicity for the stuff that you've made. Um, and of course, the way the best way to do that is to grow what you're your social media presence is to start making stuff and for people to start organically finding you and you know, eventually the content will get to the point where it stands on its own two feet and the social media uh, profile will get to the point where people want to find you based on the merits of the stuff that you're making rather than necessarily just you know being your mates or in your, on your research group or whatever and there's no hack to that the unfortunate thing is you just gotta you've got to start and grind it out and the longer you put off starting that process, the longer it's going to be until you reach that end point. So start growing your feathers now and start making stuff. What a brilliant note to end on. Thank you so much to Simon for taking the time out of his very busy schedule to talk to me. And yeah, do what he says, go out there and try stuff. I know in my career, in very different ways to Simon, trying new things and being willing to fail at them have kind of led to the the really the best parts of of my job and my career and look out for firmament in a bookshop near you and that's it for this episode don't forget to like rate and subscribe and join me next time where i'll be talking to somebody else about researchers development and everything in between